You're listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, Holland and Knight's overarching public policy and regulation podcast series. Our public policy and regulation group has an ideal combination of lawyers and lobbyists with a comprehensive understanding of the federal policy and regulatory process. This series will shine a light on the shifting dynamics of governmental entities in the ensuing changes in economic or political policies, laws, and regulations that can have a critical impact on the health and future of your business. My name is Michael Werner. I am a partner at Holland and Knight in the Washington, D.C. office. This is a podcast that Holland and Knight has recorded about the implications of the elections from this past November. I am joined by my colleague, Sarah Clock. We are both experts in FDA regulation and legislation that affects all FDA-regulated products, whether they're drugs, devices, biologics, or food and supplements. And we're going to be talking this morning for a few minutes about the impact of the elections and what we see going forward in terms of FDA policy enacted by the agency itself or perhaps legislation enacted by Congress. I'm going to start by asking uh, Sarah a couple of questions and then I'm going to talk a little bit about Congress. I'm going to ask Sarah a few questions about what she thinks is going to be happening at the agency over the next year or so. Sarah, my my first question to you is that we've seen the FDA over the last year or two take some steps around regulation of technologies that use digital health technologies and incorporate artificial intelligence and machine learning. Do you anticipate the FDA remaining engaged on those issues? Of course I do. You know, this is an evolving area of law and technology, right? So typically we see these types of products regulated as medical devices, as software as medical devices. The agency recently finalized two draft guidances that were drafts for a few years into final guidance surrounding digital health products. You know, while they're final today, they probably won't be the same document two or three years from now because just the technology is evolving faster than the FDA acts or can't act, right? And so the agency often makes determinations after the technology already exists, but it's 100% a hot topic. I expect it only to continue to be a priority for the agency. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that uh, Sarah and I do working with clients is we integrate what's happening in Congress with what's happening at the agency, because very often, of course, the, the two branches of government influence each other. So we saw many of the efforts of the agency in the digital health space come to fruition or be catalyzed by FDA legislation, the 21st Century Cures Act. In the most recent user fee bills, FDA committed to implementing various programs, one of which has to do with medical devices, but they certainly did it in the context of drugs and biologics also, where the FDA committed to taking steps to promote greater interaction between the agency and 
product developers. It's a typical complaint from product developers that they don't necessarily understand what FDA is requiring of them in terms of data from their protocols. And it's frankly a typical complaint from the agency that product developers don't provide them the information that they need or ask for. So in this round of user fee negotiations, we've seen a couple of proposals, both from the device industry and from the drug industry about that, and FDA has agreed. Sarah, is this a complaint that you've seen from clients as well, trying to better understand FDA requirements? And I know that that you and I have talked to a lot of companies about this, but maybe it'd be helpful if you talk for a minute about some strategies that are useful going forward. Sure. And, you know, using the example of digital health, right? So the agency has a digital health webpage. They have you know, a checklist that industry can use to determine whether or not they think their product is regulated by the FDA. And it's insufficient, in my experience and in yours as well, right, to just follow that and make a determination. We often see companies not understand the regulatory landscape and make a determination that their product is not, in fact, regulated by the FDA. And then they go and make some sort of claims or advertisement that suggests otherwise, right? What is the intended use? And then they have to hire us to walk back what's going on. And so I actually think a better approach here is more comprehensive. It's more of a ask for permission, not for forgiveness, where you hire either, you know, outside counsel, us or consultants to fully understand what the technology is doing, what the company wants the technology to do, how it is marketed, how are either customers or consumers of that technology using it. And you know what we would typically do is we spend a good amount of time deep diving into, into the product, the product development, the product marketing, and trying to figure out an appropriate regulatory strategy. So whether that be full FDA approval or clearance or putting it into a bucket where there's a little bit more discretion, less oversight, and helping companies work through the the pre-market side, but then also the post-market side and making sure that everything is in fact in compliance. So one of the direct question that we get asked a lot, certainly uh, leading up to election day in, and now post-election day is whether the change in the Congress will impact FDA policy and regulatory behavior, let's say. Of course, the Senate remained in Democratic hands. There still are going to be changes in the Senate that may impact the issues that the FDA regulated entities have to deal with. And that's because the chair of the committee, Senator Murray from Washington, has been rumored to be interested in stepping down and taking the chairmanship of the Appropriations Committee or another committee. And if that happens, the next person in line to be chair of the so-called Health Education, Labor and Pensions, the so-called Health Committee, would be Senator Sanders from Vermont. And Senator Sanders has shown to have a different perspective on the drug industry and the device industry than Senator Murray. Of course, many people know that Senator Sanders 
prides himself on being a kind of a little bit of an iconoclast and is certainly, I don't think people in the industries think of him as a friend of the industry. And so his ability to shape the committee agenda, the committee which has jurisdiction over FDA issues, could have a very interesting impact on what legislation Congress takes up next year and the activities it takes on. That's true on the Republican side as well. Senator Burr from North Carolina, who was the lead Republican on the committee, has retired. So there'll be a new Republican in that top spot on the committee. So what you're going to have is you're going to have completely new leadership on the Senate Health Committee. So that means that the committee may have a slightly different focus than it's had in the past. And some issues that might be in play include oversight of the pandemic response and and whether we need uh, as a country to to reinforce our public health infrastructure we could see the committee take up issues such as cannabis regulation or even the regulation of psychedelic drugs there will be an animal drug user fee bill that the congress is going to take up next year because that program has to be reauthorized So there will be FDA legislation and what that legislation looks like remains to be seen. But certainly if you work with or for a company that develops FDA regulated products, definitely something to keep an eye on. And then in the House, of course, the Republicans took over. So that means um, there will be a new chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, which is the committee that has jurisdiction over FDA in the House, and that'll be Kathy McMorris-Rogers, a Republican from Washington, and uh, Brett Guthrie, a Republican from Kentucky, will take over the health subcommittee of that, of the Energy and Commerce Committee. Frank Pallone, who has been the chair of the committee the last several years, he'll move into, he'll stay in the top Democratic spot, but he won't be the chair of the committee. Now, McMorris, Rogers, and Guthrie, and Pallone all work well together, but nonetheless, when you're the chair of the committee, you have greater influence. And I think in contrast to what I said about Senator Sanders, McMorris, Rogers, and Guthrie have historically been a little bit more friendly to product developers than Pallone. We should see some interesting opportunities for legislative changes in FDA policies, whether they be regulation or changes to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And it'll be interesting to see. I think in terms of oversight of the FDA, we might anticipate that the Republicans in the House will have oversight hearings around, again, pandemic response and future pandemic responses, but they might take a different tenor than in the Senate where the committee will be run by Democrats. So there'll be a lot of things that we need to be watching from the congressional side and how they influence whether FDA is going to move. And I mentioned cannabis, so I'm going to flip it back to you, Sarah. You know, there's been a lot of back and forth over the last several years about regulation of cannabis products. 
But FDA has kind of held firm that cannabis can't be that that the active ingredients in products that have been uh, such as Epidiolex that contain THC that have been product part of approved drugs cannot be used legally in supplements. Do you anticipate FDA changing its policy around cannabis and products with THC and cannabis oil in it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's actually not an FDA policy. I think that's the rub here. And I think that's what the misnomer with industry is, is that FDA is just being difficult. When in fact, the only way you would actually change if CBD could be used in a food or a dietary supplement would be to amend the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act or create a, some specific regulation on point because the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act prohibits an ingredient that is used in a drug or a clinical trial to then be used in a food or dietary supplement. And so the only way we would see change here is is legislative, not not regulatory. So that's another example of how Congress and FDA kind of interact on this. Congress keeps pushing FDA to say loosen its requirements and allow for private companies that make products with cannabis oil or THC in it to be more available as foods or supplements. But to Sarah's point, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act actually prohibits them from doing that. So in fact, we would need Congress to take action. What will be interesting is if Congress pushes to try to take that action, what FDA's response would be because FDA has said that they so far haven't really seen very many medical, legitimate medical uses of cannabis, except in very limited situations. So it'll be interesting to see whether, even if Congress tries to do it, whether FDA objects or tries to work with them on a compromise, don't you think? Yeah, I do. And I actually think a really good example here to illustrate that FDA can and will work with a legislative pathway is laboratory developed tests because that is currently something that the agency doesn't regulate for better or for worse. And then Congress, you know, tried to pass the Valid Act, which I guess they still could during lame duck. I defer to you on that, Michael. But the FDA would like different or additional oversight over laboratory developed tests and has been working with Congress to to have legislation here. I think laboratory developed tests in cannabis are, are in different buckets, but it does show that the agency can and will work with Congress when they think it's necessary. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up laboratory developed tests because, of course, we saw during the pandemic this issue kind of come to the surface. It had been bubbling around for a while and um, it came to the surface again in the context of COVID testing. And for those who don't know, what we're talking about is the idea that FDA regulates tests and in this case, kind of genetic tests in many ways uh, like medical devices and treats them like a medical device. And so if you're a test developer, you need a 510K clearance in order to market the product. And that is not true for so-called lab-developed tests, which historically were tests that were developed 
in a single lab, usually an academic institution, but they are regulated under the Clinical Lab Improvement Act and, and overseen by CMS, actually, but they were never seen as being a part of FDA's jurisdiction. But what's happened is as the testing industry has grown and there's greater and greater use of genome sequencing tests and, and the like, the classification of a product as a lab-developed test versus a test that requires a 510K has started to get blurry. And Congress, and, and to Sarah's point, FDA has at various points put forward ideas about ways they want to regulate tests either differently or perhaps subject so-called lab-developed tests to greater regulation. And there is this proposal in front of Congress now, the Valid Act, which would address this issue, but it's unclear whether in the waning days of this congressional session, whether they'll be able to enact it. But it does raise one question, Sarah, which is we've seen a lot of companies come forward or be concerned about how their test is regulated. So maybe it'd be useful to give, um, just spend a minute um, talking about how we help companies in, in those situations. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, Michael, we, we do this regularly, whether that test or product be a regulated medical device or a laboratory developed test. And, you know, it's, it's similar to what we were talking about with software products as medical devices. And so our analysis is really dictated on how the technology is used and marketed and we work with companies to get them where they want to go. So if they want their test to not be an FDA-regulated medical device and here be a laboratory-developed test, then we help them structure and situate their product into the regulatory parameters that exist today. Whereas if you want your product to actually be a regulated medical device, and there's pros and cons to both, you know, if you're a genetic test and and you want to be able to advertise your product as an FDA-cleared product, I think the advertisement is probably a little bit better, a little bit stronger than a laboratory-developed test. It requires more substantiation. It requires more process and paperwork and, and more time to get a 510K cleared. But we, we can you know assist on the 510K application. We can help craft marketing. We can assist in reviewing advertisements and websites. And so our entire goal is to get the client where they want to be, but also educate them on how to get there. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. That's that's absolutely right. And I and the point that I want to emphasize from what Sarah was talking about was the point about how we really work with our clients to get them where they want to be because as she said there sometimes are advantages to being regulated as a device and there are sometimes when a company may want to be regulated or classified as a lab developed test and you know that's true in in the digital health space that's true in a lot of the medical device space and and that's a big part of of how we assist clients I should say that we do a lot of a similar kind of approach in the context of tissue engineered products where in a in in kind of an analogous way FDA will regulate certain cell therapy products or tissue engineered products by saying that the cells are 
so-called more than minimally manipulated their process. They, they go through some kind of manufacturing and therefore a biologics license application is required, which means a company is going to have to do clinical trials, et cetera. But then there are a whole class of other products that are just cell and tissue-based products where the cells and tissue are not processed in such a manner that FDA would consider them BLA required. So it's a similar kind of approach that Sarah and I take, which is kind of analyzing the products, analyzing the technology, and then matching that with FDA's regulations as written, as well as what we know about FDA's behavior and previous times when they've, previous experiences and how they've regulated products and do the same kind of analysis and help our clients get to where they need to be. And it's actually kind of a model that we use with devices and drugs and biologics. I don't know if Sarah, you wanted to add anything to that. I would just also add, we do the same thing for for food, supplements, for cosmetics, right? And so I think FDA has these frameworks in each essentially center that allow, I wouldn't say wiggle room, but allow companies to explore different regulatory pathways to market. And we assist clients to get to their best fit. Right. And each of those situations, of course, is unique based on what a product developer is trying to accomplish in the market and what their business goals are and their business plan is and their objectives. But in many ways, we're able to use our experience doing this for many, many years to be able to develop the best approach for each. So I don't know, Sarah, if you have any closing words for the podcast. I think we've just tried to kind of give a rough outline of, number one, what we expect um, from the agency post-election, and number two, what some of our clients' experiences have been and what folks need to be preparing for as they go forward. Any closing words, Sarah? The only thing I will add to all of this is that I think that industry experienced a little bit of a pause of of FDA enforcement, whether that be warning letters, inspections, recalls. And the last six months have shown that FDA is back and better than ever. And just a word to the wise, you know, I if I was an in industry, I would expect a an inspection very shortly, or if you were not being compliant, potentially a warning letter or inspectional findings or a recall. And so, you know, we're always here to either help work through the regulatory process and ask for permission or, you know, ask for forgiveness when the warning letter comes. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks to all who are listening and contact information will be made available and we look forward to hearing from you and helping you. Thank you for listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit hklaw.com slash PPR.